We're in the middle of a three-week mini-series on some of the cultural issues that are hotly debated and being discussed a lot in this particular generation. Um, and if you could grab your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that would be great. 1 Corinthians 6. We're going to look today at human sexuality, right? sexuality, scripture, what the Bible says and how God would have us love and respond lovingly to questions of human sexuality. Last week, we looked at care for creation, uh, what's often called the environment. Next week, we're going to be looking at issues of sex and gender and transgender and intersex and so on. But this week, we're going to look at human sexuality. And that is an important and also very challenging subject for many amongst us with real implications for a lot of people in this community and many, many people in this city. So I want to start before we turn and read scripture just to make a two or three introductory kind of pastoral comments, which I hope will help us as we approach a, a challenging subject. The first comment is just actually picking up from where we were last week. God created sex as one of the many things he created and saw it was good. He gave it to humanity, he gave it to the world, and he said, in fact, his first instruction to any person was be fruitful and multiply. In other words, have sex and have children. Go into the world and expand. And sex is a gift of God. There's a whole book in the Bible, the Song of Songs, about the joy and beauty of sex. And it's a picture in many ways of God's love for his people and Christ and the church as well. But God loves sex. It's a very positive vision you'd get from scripture of human sexuality. So when we encounter things where the Bible says, yeah, but don't do that, that's to be said in the context of a very high view of sex that comes through from Genesis 1 through to the very end of Scripture as well. That's the first comment. Another comment to make is that we all approach the subject of sexuality, who you have sex with and who you don't, through cultural lenses that we need to understand are there and really test and submit to God's Word and God's Spirit. So, we have a whole load of assumptions just from being brought up where we were in the family and in the com community and city that we were. So, for instance, many of us have been brought up, most of us probably, been brought up in a culture where sex is the closest thing you can imagine to a god. It's pretty much, the, that's the highest good. Having sex is like the thing, the apex of the Christian life. It's the thing that if you don't have it, you can't flourish as a person. Now, that's a completely non-biblical, anti-biblical perspective, but many in our culture share it. So it's almost the source of comedy. Like, before I was married, a friend of mine worked for a TV company and got in touch with me, and he said, hey, we're doing a TV show about people who are virgins. Do you want to come on the show? And it's basically like a source of comedy that somebody might not have had sex at the time, and he knew I hadn't, so he asked me. And I'm, I was like, this is the way that people view celibacy or singleness. And in our kind of culture, faithful singleness is much more challenging than it often has been in many generations because our culture is really quite obsessed with the God of sex. And there's cultural reasons for that. So that's an assumption we have to bring before scripture and say, no, that's not, that doesn't seem to be how God sees it at all. On the other hand, many others of us have probably been brought up in a culture where gay sex is perceived to be more terrible than any other kind of sin or any other kind of sexual sin. So you get lots of people who might come and say, well, okay, I, I struggle with greed. They'd say, okay, well, we can work on that. Or I struggle with pornography. And you might say, okay, well, let's, we'll hold you, we'll be accountable, we'll make sure we talk about it and keep bring it all into the light, um, but we can work that through. But if somebody was to say, I struggle because I'm attracted to people of the same sex as me, people would say, no, 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 that, that you can't be a Christian then. That's off, that's off the table, no one struggle, should struggle with that. I don't think that's biblical either. 
Actually, we'll see in a moment it isn't. There's actually a whole range of ways in which people struggle with different kinds of sexual temptation and all of it needs to be brought into the light and brought before God. And so there's a couple of introductory comments. Just one more I'd make is that this is a deeply personal subject for many people in this room. This is something, I mean, including me, by the way. This was my story as a teenager. I was attracted to boys between the age of about 13 and 18. And I wrestled, I didn't act on it by the grace of God, but I was, I really struggled with this and fought a lot of temptation as a teenage boy. And know that that's definitely true for a bunch of people in this church, many of whom are much older than I was, who've who've lived with this their whole lives. Um, Close friends of ours for whom this is a very live issue. Numerous rock solid church members around you who may have served you or even led you today in some way for whom this will be their one of their major challenges in the Christian life and their battle with temptation might look very different from yours but you've got one too it's just perhaps differently shaped and that's without mentioning all the friends relatives kids kids friends all that stuff as well so this isn't abstract it's not a it's not like a topic or a subject as much as it's a very real issue for real people particularly amongst us so with those introductory comments in place Let's read 1 Corinthians 6 and verses 9 to 20. Or do you not know, Paul says, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I won't be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know? Your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Or don't you know that he who's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Well, don't you know, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of God. Don't be deceived, Paul says in verse 10. Sex is an area where it is so easy to be deceived, tricked or deluded because we want to be tricked often. We want to be seduced, led away. And we can be tricked in all kinds of different ways. And I just want to highlight a few that Paul raises in this very passage and then comment on perhaps a few others as well. But we can be tricked, for instance, into thinking that sin is okay and doesn't have negative consequences. That's the first trick in in human history. That's exactly what the snake wanted Eve to believe and Adam to believe. Sin's fine. No bad thing will happen to you. You will not surely die. That's the way that the, the devil approaches human sin and it tries to get it into the human race. Sin's okay. So Paul makes it clear, no, no, no. 
don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. All right, so that's the, a kind of a deception. And Paul says, no, I don't want you to be tricked. I don't want you to think that sin doesn't really do anything bad. It does something very, very bad. It means you don't inherit the kingdom if you persist in that lifestyle. But from the opposite side, we can be, be deceived in a very different way. We can be tricked into thinking that other people's sins are far worse than ours. So, as if what we can be deceived into thinking that big sin that they struggle with deserves judgment. My little sins that I struggle with do not deserve judgment, or certainly not the same sort of judgment. So Paul addresses that as well. He says, don't be deceived, neither thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, in verse 10. So you might say, well, Paul in verse 9 is sort of grouping together some sins that a lot of people in human history and Christian history have said, those are big sins. Adultery, sexual immorality, homosexuality, idolatry. You'd say, okay, well, those might be big sins then, but not mine. And he said, no, it's true of greedy people too. It's true of people who get drunk as well. It's true of revilers, people who slander other people, who use their mouth in ways that bring, brings dishonor on other people. It's true of all sin. It doesn't inherit the kingdom. And so there's a, don't be deceived on, with thinking this is okay, but don't be deceived in thinking that what you're struggling with is okay either, Paul said. And of course, whatever sin we struggle with, whether it's one of those 10 or something else, we can be tricked into thinking that there is no escape from it. The devil loves to pull this trick. He loves getting Christians to think, I am trapped forever in this way of life and I can't get out and nothing will change. So Paul reminds his readers of their own story and says to them, and such were some of you. Some of you were idolaters. Some of, many of the Corinthians would have come, before they came to know Christ, they would have been bowing down to idols. We'll find out later in this letter, some of them kind of still are. But he said, many of you were, you were fornicating, you are sleeping around, you are having sex with prostitutes. Again, some of them, as we find out in this chapter, still are. And he's saying, no, such were some of you. Many of you have experienced this kind of sin in your background and struggle with temptation towards it to this day. But you were washed. You were sanctified, that is, you were made holy. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, verse 11. In other words, it's, it is absolute lies to say, having got into this pattern of life, I'm stuck in it forever. Paul says, no, your own testimonies prove that's not the case. You were like this too, but the Spirit of God came to you and God justified you and he made you holy. And now look at you. And that doesn't mean you're not struggling, because we know from this chapter that many of you are. But your lives have been transformed by the work of God and his grace in your lives. So do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. Paul is saying, yes, gay sex is sinful. Sex outside marriage in general, is in any setting, is sinful. And so are lots of other things. And there is no sin from which you cannot be washed, made holy, and declared righteous in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Amen? That's, don't be deceived. Don't, don't distort that truth in any one of those multiple different ways. Now that's Paul's primary agenda in the opening few verses that we looked at. But there are all kinds of other ways in which you can be deceived. We can, I can, right? Just part of the culture we're in. You can be deluded on this subject in a multitude of ways. Like other deceptions are also available, you might say. 
Right? So for instance, one way in which people can be deceived is to say sex doesn't matter. It really is just trivial. It doesn't matter who you have sex with. Having sex with somebody is just a pleasurable physical experience that you undertake in order to have an emotional hormonal rush. Right? It's got no transcendent meaning beyond itself. Might as well be going skydiving with somebody. You just don't have clothes on. That's all it is. It's, like a, it's just a physical buzz. Now, frankly, no one really believes that even when they say it. And the reason you know that is because you find that out when people start talking about sexual sin that they disapprove of. So if somebody starts talking about pedophilia or rape or incest or whatever it might be, you realize you don't actually think sex is nothing. Because if you did, you wouldn't react that way. You know that it matters. You know that it is something beyond itself. It's not simply a physical experience of something. It carries greater weight than other things do. And you know it doesn't. And that's why you react so strongly in our culture, and rightly so, to those sorts of things. But ultimately, the theological reason for that, Paul says, is sex does matter because, verse 15, you're members of Christ. Verse 17, you're one spirit with the Lord. Verse 19, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God. And because that's what your body is, you cannot have sex with someone else without it mattering deeply to you and to them. This is a transcendent, mysterious activity which points beyond itself in ways we'll consider in a moment. And that means that sex does matter very much, both to God and actually when we're honest with ourselves, to us. Another deception you might, you might buy, sexuality is identity, right? That's a very widespread, I think, deception in the culture we're in, if we're honest. My sexual preferences or my sexual desires define who I am at the deepest level. That's me. If you engage critically with my sexuality, you're, in, you're challenging the very essence of who I am. It might even be the most important thing about me is my sexual preference. And no, Paul says, he said, no, of course it's part of you. But that's not who you are. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You've been declared righteous in Christ. And that's a bigger thing about you than your sexual preference. And by the way, that's not only true for gay people. That's true for what we'd call straight people as well. That's true for all of us. Nobody said, no, the most important thing about me is that I'm married. I might finish this message and get a, get a voicemail message that my wife has just been killed. That doesn't, it would be tragic, it would be devastating, but it wouldn't in itself change the dynamic of me as a child of God and my identity in Christ. That's at the deepest level who I am. And sexuality is, is part of me and it's important to understand it, but it's not my identity. Here's another deception that's out there. Gay sex is no different from male female sex. Just the same. Doesn't matter. Because it's because it's uh, simply a, a sort of biological exchange, because it's simply a, a hormonal rush, doesn't really matter. You may have seen this, um, I can't remember if I've shown it before, but it was an advert that ran a couple of years ago um, with KLM, the Dutch airline, were trying to celebrate pride. You know, all the, all the big companies go, hey, we're going to be really sort of pride aware. And they put out this advert and they ran it with the strap line, it doesn't matter who you click with. And they put this image of seatbelts. And of course, it just got the most ridiculous reaction because everybody said, that is an absolutely absurd. Even people who are very pro-gay would come back and say, that is just such a stupid image because of course it matters who you click with. To be honest, most of those combinations don't click at all. 
It, the image you've used shows that there is a difference between male and female, or male and male, or female and female, and we all know that. Now, of course, many people would comment on that and say, it doesn't make any difference, it's still okay. But actually, the, the deception at work, which some people in our culture pretend to believe, but again, at root, most people know is not the case, is, oh, there's no difference. You say, well, no, there really is. One can make children, the other one cannot. One actually fits in the sense of this image, the other one does not. And that's a, so that's another deception. But often people want to be, we want to be deceived. We say, oh, I love that deception. That, that sounds interesting. That means I can be much more, you know, alternative or experimental. No, Paul would say, just don't be deceived. Just wake up and smell the coffee. That's not the way things are. Another example of the deception. I can do whatever I want. My body, my choice. I am mine. To which Paul says, no, you're not. You're not yours. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So honor God with your body. Your body is a temple of God's. It doesn't belong to you ultimately. It's his. Opening question of the Heidelberg Catechism, which I so often quote, but I will again. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not mine, but I belong body and soul to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and he set me free from the tyranny of the devil. I'm not my own. And that comes from right here in 1 Corinthians chapter six. Well, how about one more deception that's out there? What we really need to solve our sexual challenges, what we really need is to get married. That's a very common deception. And Paul goes into that at some length in the next chapter, in chapter seven. Most of chapter seven is actually about that and the whole picture around marriage and singleness. And Paul's response is, no, no, no. Marriage is good, but singleness is, he says, even better. He says, I wish all people were like I am, a single man, Paul says. So it's, again, it's a deception that people say, it's all right, what you really need, just get married. That'll sort the problem out. So it doesn't sort the problem out. If you're straight, it doesn't resolve the issue. You carry the issues into your marriage and you have to work them through with someone else. If you're attracted to someone of the same sex, it doesn't sort the issue out either, just getting married as if that'll fix it. I thought there was such a helpful set of comments from Jackie Hill Perry, who's a sister of ours in, in North America. She's just done such a great job that I wanted to play three minutes from her on what she says about this because this is part of her own story as well. And I think it might help you if that's one of the, if that's a deception that you're familiar with, what Jackie says I hope will help. Well. I think as early as four or five, I felt like I was attracted to the same sex. And I didn't know what to do with it, didn't feel the freedom to talk to anybody about it. And then even as a teenager, just kind of wrestling with stuff and just eventually submitting to it. The thing about feelings is God made them. God created us with the capacity to feel. And the main reason he did it is so that we could glorify him with our feelings. But the, the thing about sin is sin distorted that. And so even when you go back to Genesis 3 and you see that Eve is looking at this tree that God said, hey, the day you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. That was his word. That was to be believed. And if believed, she would continue to live freely. When she started to listen to Satan and be tempted, he said that she thought that the tree was desired to make one wise. I think it's interesting that she uses a word of affection to describe how she sees this tree now. And I think the desire was real. I think it was a real feeling 
that then governed how she saw the word God. And so I can't trust my feelings because my feelings really ultimately have no authority. The word of God is the ultimate authority in everything. And so if I put my feelings above scripture, I'm going to be led to death every single time. I choose God because I love God. And that's not to say that there isn't the still present gnawing of my flesh to want what I used to love, which is sin, which is lesbianism, which is women, which is pride. But what the Holy Spirit does when he comes inside of somebody is he completely makes them new. I'm able to look at the tree and see that the tree actually isn't good for food. I think it's a habit of some to to assume that somebody coming to the Lord who is same-sex attracted, that coming to Christ means that your old affections will be done away with, that somehow you will become straight, that somehow you'll just desire marriage overnight and have kids and all of that type of stuff. And a lot of times it's presented like a kind of gospel, as if having heterosexual desires are actually a fruit of the spirit and not self-control. There are many believers who love Jesus, are filled with the Spirit, are bearing the fruits of the Spirit, and are committed to a life of celibacy because they, as far as they know, will never find themselves attracted to the opposite sex. But the thing is, they are just as glorifying to the Father as I might be, being someone who God happened to allow to walk in a heterosexual marriage and have children. But the thing is, my marriage is not evidence of salvation but the fruit of the spirit is evidence of salvation. I was bearing the fruits of the spirit far before I ever met my husband. Anyway, I think there are a whole bunch of ways in which we can be deceived when it comes to sex and sexuality, and indeed sin more generally, right? That's part of the point, is it's tricksy. Sin catches you by making you believe it's okay when it's not. But there are at the same time, there's a lot of genuine questions, which are not deceptions, they're like, okay, now I can see there are some things I must not believe, but I've got some real questions too. What do I do with those? For instance, why does sex matter so much to God? Why does it carry this transcendent, mysterious meaning? And a, a shorthand I use, this image that's on the screen now, I use this as a shorthand for what I think the Christian answer is, which is that sex and sexuality represents three main things. It represents the, a unity in creation between heaven and earth. And actually, the story of the Bible is that heavens and the earth, like male and female, are distinct and separate. And in the end, they come together and heaven and earth effectively get married. And Revelation 21 and 22 finishes with the union of heaven and earth. And sex points to that reality. It also represents worship. And actually, our sexuality is, an, is like a mirrors our faithfulness to God, that actually you either worship one God and have one sexual partner who's unlike you, or you have many gods who are just like you and many sexual partners who might well be just like you. And that's the sort of fork in the road that actually sexual immorality and idolatry are very closely connected throughout the Bible in the Old and New Testament. And some of the passages and the prophets are pretty fiery on this, using very vivid language of sexuality to describe what worshipping idols is like. And then the third thing that sex and sexuality put on display is the gospel. The fact that Jesus Christ comes for one, his bride, the husband comes as a bridegroom and he lays his life down to present her pure and spotless. 
and to wash her and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word and to make her whole. And as a result, the church is rescued and ransomed by Christ and then follows him and is led by him into all flourishing and fullness. And the church and Christ, of course, finish history as well, beautifully married, one with, fully with the other forever. So sex matters to God for a bunch of good reasons. And, but that might be a question we're wrestling with. So why does it matter? And I find that can often help people to think through some of the greater meaning of sex and sexuality that was revealed in Scripture. Another question, we, a genuine question we actually have to ask is, all right, so that's why sex matters so much to God. Why does it matter so much in our culture? Why do people make it so central in this culture? Because that might be a challenge for you. Why is so celibacy, the practice of abstaining from sex, that was very, very honoured in the Christian Middle Ages. But it's much, much less valued now to the point, as I say, it's often almost ridiculed. Why is that? Why is sex the one thing that people in this generation would say, I won't give that up in order to follow God? People will say, yeah, I'll give up eating meat if that's what is required by my religion. I'll give up eating something else. I'll give up drinking alcohol. I'll even give up my foreskin. I'll give up whatever, a body part. I mean, it might be I literally sacrifice something, but I won't give up sex. Sex is too important. Why does our culture think that way? And again, I think part of it is that celibacy points beyond itself. It's actually a form of fasting in which we forsake a worldly good thing for a heavenly good thing that will be immeasurably greater in the future. But obviously, if you don't believe in that heavenly good thing, why on earth would you give up the earthly one? And so in our culture, as you lose a sense that there is a heavenly good thing to reach for in Christ, you say, well, what on earth is the point in paying the price by not having this earthly good thing? And then the final question you might be asking is simply, what do we do? What should we do? What, go, what do I do as a believer? Right? Okay, interesting, helpful. How do I best support and encourage same-sex attracted or celibate gay Christians in our community? How do we ensure that we're not making an idol out of marriage ourselves? Or how do we talk about these issues in ways that make sense to people who find them puzzling or bizarre or very offensive, as of course many in this generation do? How do we love God and his word? How do we, at the same time as loving other people in our community, at the same time as loving the world? This is something I've, I've taught on and written on a lot before, and I've obviously got very limited time this morning. But I just wanted to introduce you to five resources, which if you want to go further into this, I think you will find helpful. And one is Sam Albury's book, Is God Anti-Gay? It's actually being re-released as we speak. It's outstanding, very sh short. It's like, I'd call it, that's the one chili, you know, on curry boxes. They're one, two, and three chilies. That's a very one chili guide. It's very simple, but very clear. Uh, again, written by a, a same-sex attracted man. Jackie Hill Perry, who we met a few moments ago. Her testimony book, Gay Girl, Good God. It's just a very helpful story. She's a great writer and communicator. Preston Sprinkle, amusing name I know, friend of mine, um, but he's written a book called People to be Loved, which I think is the best sort of too chilly version of the argument. Very good on the biblical text. He's a New Testament scholar and a very able guy. And Rachel Gilson, best title of the four, a book called Born Again This Way. And again, she speaks as a, as a woman who's attracted to women, but tells her story, but weaves in a lot of biblical reflection and, and insightful help on that as well. And then the final resource is actually a website, www.livingout.org, which is a British website of same-sex attracted Christians sharing helpful resources uh, for them and, and for the church as a whole. As we close today, I want to simply say this. In all of these questions and issues and personal challenges, we must not underestimate the power of God's word. 
we must not underestimate the power of God's Spirit. We must not underestimate the power of bringing things, whatever they are, into God's light and allowing God to shape and speak to them by his word through his spirit. I spoke at a conference um, 10 or 12 years ago where I probably got heckled more angrily than I ever have been. Uh, somebody just really laying into me from the from the congregation in front of everybody. Just how dare you say that you're a straight man? Who thinks you could possibly have the arrogance to speak about this subject to someone like me? And she was absolutely furious, and I did my best to handle it graciously. At the end of that session, another woman came up to me and just said, "Can I just say thank you so much for what you said?" And I thought, "Oh, okay, thank you." She said, "I'm a lesbian, and I've been in a civil partnership, which is at the time it was before gay marriage, but effectively I've been married to my partner." And I recently came to faith, and my partner recently came to faith, both of us on different Alpha courses. And we came to realize that the life we were leading, even though we have adopted a child together, the life we were leading meant we actually need to separate in our sexual relationship and find out a new way of doing life such that we and our child can all flourish, but without the sexual relationship. And I just wanted to say thank you for saying what you said. And I just marveled that day and have marveled ever since with many, many situations which look similar with the power of the word of God to change lives, the power of the spirit to bring new birth and transform our desires, the power of the light of God's word with whatever sin you wrestle with, whether it's sexual or something completely unrelated, could be pornography, could be immorality, adultery, could be anything, but the power of God's word and spirit and bringing things into the light in front of him to bring total transformation to the Christian. I wanted to leave you with that encouragement. But now let's pray for ourselves and for one another in the community that we might live faithfully before this holy God. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the goodness of your created world, of sex, of your word, of the guidelines that you put within your word, of how you release and help and strengthen and encourage us by your spirit. And we pray for everyone in, who is listening to this right now, every last one of us, that we would have wisdom and grace in our own lives and courage it where we need it to be able to walk a godly path with our sexuality, whatever that means for us. Lifelong singleness, fruitful marriage, discipling others, laying, laying down our reputation sometimes to stand on what we believe, but at the same time being as gracious and loving as the Spirit enables us to be with those who may disagree. We pray in Jesus' name, help us, Lord, to witness to you faithfully because we have been washed and sanctified and justified in the name of Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.